Hell is without a doubt one of the most unpopular and unappealing truths of Christianity. I like what Thomas Merton said about this, though. He wrote, Why should anyone be shattered by the thought of hell? It is not compulsory for anyone to go there. Throughout Jesus' teachings in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, which we have been looking at over the course of the past couple of weeks, he has alluded to judgment taking place at his second coming. The wicked will be held accountable. In the final passage of Matthew chapter 25, which is where we will be at this morning, which is the very last of the major teachings by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, he talks about that judgment in very direct and stark terms. Justice is a topic that is talked about a lot in our society. And what we have in this passage is God carrying out final justice. So flip over to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to be picking up in verse 31. This passage of Scripture is often called a parable, but it isn't a parable in the sense that we usually think of as a parable. Jesus uses the analogy here of how a shepherd separates sheep and goats for how people will be separated at the judgment. But throughout this passage, Jesus is describing what appears to be the way things will really play out. So verse 31, Jesus is speaking. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The second coming of Jesus will be in glory, it says here. It will not be like his first coming. When he entered into our world as a baby, weak and dependent, instead the second coming of Jesus will be in power and majesty, and authority, and judgment. He will not be coming alone, but accompanied by an army of angels, it says. The angels with him will not be this cute little chubby variety that we find on greeting cards. They will be the overwhelmingly powerful warriors of God that we read about in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Jesus will not be the cooing child laying in a manger. Rather, he will be the great king over all of heaven and earth, sitting on his glorious throne, exercising judgment. That's the picture that we have here. And it says that all nations will be gathered before him. What we have pictured is the judgment of all of humanity through all of time. All people will be separated like the way a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The sheep will be put on his right and the goats will be put on his left. This analogy Jesus uses here is something that was, would have been very familiar to the people of his day. Sheep and goats commonly intermingled with one another while they are feeding and grazing out in the fields during the day. But the shepherd would then separate them at night and for addressing needs that are, were unique for each kind of animal. 
In the ancient world, sheep were generally thought of as more valuable than goats. Sheep, too, were often associated with what is good, while goats were associated with trouble. And if you've ever seen sheep and goats out in these pastures as you've driven along, you notice that the sheep are usually pretty docile, chilling type of animals. But the goats, they're climbing on stuff. I mean, they're causing troubles. So it's very consistent with their personalities here, as we see. The, the right hand is the place of honor, and the left hand is, in the ancient world, the place of disgrace. Verse 20 or 34, he says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Those on the king's right, the sheep, are the people invited to receive their inheritance. It says, the kingdom prepared for them since the creation of the world. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples on the evening before he would be crucified? He told them that he was going to return to the Father, but he gave them these wonderful words of encouragement that we find in John 14, verse 1. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. That you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Jesus has prepared a kingdom for his people. A kingdom that has been prepared for them since the creation of the world. Imagine that. It has been prepared since the creation of the world. This kingdom has always been intended for the people of Jesus. Thirty-five. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. So Jesus tells them, they fed him when he was hungry. They gave him something to drink when he was thirsty. They invited him in when he was a stranger. They clothed him when he needed clothes. They cared for him when he was sick. They visited him when he was in prison. These things that Jesus lists here, they were considered righteous deeds in the Jewish culture at that time. And in verse 37, <clears throat> says, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? These people called the righteous by Jesus, they're surprised and they're confused, wondering when did they do any of these things for him? And he says in verse 40, the king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus, the king, tells them 
when they did these things for the least of his brothers and sisters, they did these things for him. An important question here has to do with who the least of his brothers and sisters include. Does it include all people, whether they are followers of Jesus or not? That doesn't appear to be the meaning. Jesus refers to them as his brothers and sisters. The brothers and sisters of Jesus are those who believe in and follow him as Messiah. This is something that is repeatedly taught throughout the New Testament. It is a it is common in our society to refer to all people, all people as the children of God, and in a sense we all are. But in the language of the Bible, not every human being is a child of God or a brother and sister of Jesus. Those who have embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord through faith and been born again by the Spirit of God are the children of God and the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Now I want to add a, a word of clarification here. Although the brothers and sisters of Jesus are clearly his disciples, his followers, those who believe in him as Savior and Lord, the Bible teaches us that we should be concerned for the well-being of all people, regardless of whether they are believers or not. So please don't take this to mean that we can be indifferent toward the needs of people who are not believers. That is not the intent of what is being said here. A helpful scripture that captures this bigger picture for us on this topic is Galatians 6, 9, and 10, where Paul writes, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. As followers of Jesus, as Christians, we are encouraged to do good to all people with our first obligation being to the family of believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Contrary to what some people think, the main mission of the church is not social welfare. But we are not to ignore and be indifferent to human need around us either. One of the blessings of being a part of the family of believers is the support that we receive from one another. There is nothing wrong with the church supporting those in the church. That is something that it should be done. Our brothers and sisters in Christ should be our first priority. But obviously, it's not right for us to be building a Christian country club for ourselves while the rest of the world is suffering. That would certainly bring the judgment of the Lord against us. Proverbs 21.13, for example, says, Whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. Jesus refers to the least of his brothers and sisters. Who is this? 
The Greek word means insignificant, lowest in status, trivial, inferior. The least of our brothers and sisters are those we find the least attractive and least rewarding to help. Those who are overlooked and ignored, those who can't pay us back for the assistance that we give, those who we find the most difficult and challenging to offer help to. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he tells us in his letter, I mean, he helps us in his letter to understand how we should carry out our acts of kindness and mercy over in James chapter 2. Verse 1, James writes this, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. Verse 41 of our passage in Matthew 25. It says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the king, Jesus, he addresses those on his left, the goats, These people are judged and they're condemned to eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In contrast to the kingdom purposely prepared for the people of Jesus since the creation of the world, these people are condemned to that which was prepared for the devil and his angels. Tragically, the fate of these people was never intended to be theirs. The Lord's desire for every human being is to know Him and walk in fellowship with Him. Hell has never been the Lord's intended destiny for anyone. And He has done everything needed so it does not have to be the destiny of anyone. Forty-two. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. 
I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? So the king tells them why they are condemned. When Jesus was hungry, they gave him nothing to eat. When he was thirsty, they gave him nothing to drink. When he was a stranger, they did not invite him in. When he needed clothes, they didn't clothe him. When he was sick, they did not care for him. When he was in prison, they didn't visit him. And they respond in a similar way as the first group of people. They are surprised and confused, wondering when they failed to do any of these things for Jesus. In 45, he says, he will repair, he will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. When they did not do these things for the least of these, they did not do it for Jesus. Who are the least of these that Jesus is referring to? Well, following the repetition that's being used throughout this passage, These are the same people mentioned in verse 40 as the least of these brothers and sisters of Jesus. It's the same group of people. Failing to extend kindness and mercy in practical ways to the least of his brothers and sisters is the same as failing to extend kindness and mercy to Jesus himself. That ought to raise our eyebrows a little. And then he ends in 46, he says, Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I want to make some reflections on this passage. For the sincere believer and follower of Jesus, there are a few passages of Scripture that are more uncomfortable for us than this one. And it's because our natural inclination is to fear that we have fallen short of the high standard that's expressed here. And in truth, we have all fallen short of this high standard. Who among us has not failed to do these acts of kindness and mercy to the least of the brothers and sisters of Jesus? We have all failed to do this. Some of us have failed more than others. I want to encourage you with this thought, though. The fact that you are concerned about your failing to have done all that Jesus wants you to do is a very positive sign about the condition of your soul. It shows that you have a tender heart toward the Lord, that you have a humble attitude, that you want to please Him with your life, that you know you are in need of His forgiveness and His mercy. People who don't care if they have failed to fulfill the will of Jesus, are those most in danger at the judgment. See, simply doing the kind of good deeds that Jesus describes in this passage will not save us. Doing these kinds of good deeds is evidence 
of our having a relationship with Jesus as our Savior and Lord, but it does not establish that relationship. The sad and frustrating truth is none of us do our good deeds faultlessly and regularly enough. There is selfish motive intermixed with why we do these kinds of things. There are lapses in our doing good. Our sinful nature and selfishness, they soil and they dirty the good deeds we do. The size and the showiness of the deeds that we do is not what matters either. Too often, we think the same way the unbelieving world does about what matters. The kingdom of God, though, has a completely different metric. Bible teacher James Montgomery Boyce writes this, the evidence of a credible Christian profession is not how many great works have been performed for Jesus, how many churches have been built, or millions of dollars given to Christ's cause. The proofs of conversion are not great things at all. They're little things, as most people think of them. Sharing food with a brother who is hungry, giving water to a sister who is thirsty, welcoming a stranger, offering clothes to one who needs clothing, caring for the sick, or visiting a person who is in prison. It doesn't take you and me doing ostentatious deeds to please the Lord. What pleases Him is to see you and I express selfless love toward our brothers and sisters, especially to the ones who are overlooked and avoided by others. When we consider the truth of who we are when left to ourselves, it is utter foolishness, maybe I should say utter madness, to trust in our own good deeds for being counted among the sheep and receiving an invitation to enter into the Lord's glorious kingdom. We must trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Trust in his sacrificial death and in his resurrection for us. That's what enables us to be counted as his sheep and invited into his kingdom. Not our good deeds. I want to talk briefly about hell for a moment. I've heard many preachers point out that Jesus said more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. And that is true. Jesus has mentioned hell more often than anyone else has in the Bible. I often find the tone in which that bit of trivia is shared to be troublesome, though. The attitude and the tone often seems to lack the kind of sober concern that this topic warrants. There's nothing pleasant about the topic of hell other 
than to know that it is not required that we go there. We have one who has died in our place to save us from such a fate. Deal Moody said he should not preach about hell who can not do it without tears. One of the reasons Jesus can and does say more about hell than anyone else is because there is no one else in the Bible or among human beings at large qualified to speak about hell like Jesus can. He's the only one of us who doesn't deserve hell. And he's the only one of us who truly knows about the horrors of hell. There's an old joke about hell that says we will be so busy in hell shaking the hands of our old friends that we won't have time to worry or suffer. The truth is, hell is total separation from everyone and everything. Not only separation from God, but separation from everyone we ever knew. There will be no partying in hell, no reunions with old acquaintances. The Bible describes hell as utter darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and as eternal fire. These descriptions are most certainly symbolic, but they carry the idea that there is no light, no pleasure, no joy. It is a depth of misery and loneliness that we can't fathom. And perhaps the most shocking of all things to consider about hell is that all who are there have chosen it. I want to read a passage by Timothy Keller from, Timothy Keller from his book, The Reason for God, which uh, I think helps explain this idea better than I can. <clears throat> He writes, modern people inevitably think that hell works like this. God gives us time, but if we haven't made the right choices by the end of our lives, he casts our souls into hell for all eternity. As the souls fall through space, they cry out for mercy, but God says, too late, you had your chance, now you will suffer. This caricature misunderstands the very nature of evil, though. The biblical picture is that sin separates us from the presence of God, which is the source of all joy and indeed of all love, wisdom, or good things of any sort. Since we were originally created for God's immediate presence, only before his face will we thrive, flourish, and achieve our highest potential. If we were to lose his presence totally, that would be hell. The loss of our capability for giving or receiving love or joy. A common image of hell in the Bible is that of fire. Fire disintegrates. Even in this life, we can see the kind of soul disintegration that self-centeredness creates. 
We know how selfishness and self-absorption leads to piercing bitterness, nauseating envy, paralyzing anxiety, paranoid thoughts, and the mental denials and distortions that accompany them. Now ask the question, what if when we die we don't end, but spiritually our life extends on into eternity? Hell, then, is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. In his fantasy, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis describes a busload of people from hell who come to the outskirts of heaven. There they are urged to leave behind the sins that have trapped them in hell, but they refuse. Lewis's description of these people is striking because we recognize in them the self-delusion and self-absorption that are in miniature in our own addictions. The people in hell are miserable, but Lewis shows us why. We see raging like unchecked flames, their pride, their paranoia, their self-pity, their certainty that everyone else is wrong, that everyone else is an idiot. All their humility is gone, and thus so is their sanity. They are utterly, finally locked in a prison of their own self-centeredness, and their pride progressively expands into a bigger and bigger mushroom cloud. They continue to go to pieces forever, blaming everyone but themselves. That is why it is a travesty to picture God casting people into a pit who are crying, I'm sorry, let me out. The people on the bus from hell in Lewis's parable would rather have their freedom, as they define it, than salvation. Their delusion is that if they glorified God, they would somehow lose power and freedom. But in supreme and tragic irony, their choice has ruined their own potential for, for greatness. Hell is, as Lewis says, the greatest monument to human freedom. As Romans 1.24 says, God gave them up to their desires. All God does in the end with people is give them what they most want, including freedom from Him. What could be more fair than that? In the end, there are two kinds of people, those who embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord and those who refuse to. C.S. Lewis expressed it this way, There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. In closing, there is no reason for anyone to go to hell. Through Jesus Christ, God has done everything everything needed for you and me to avoid that fate. C.S. Lewis makes this final remark for us to consider. In the long run, 
the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all cost give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? He's done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. They refuse to be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. He leaves them alone. Jesus Christ has died in our place, taken upon himself the punishment that we deserve for our sin and came back to life to give us eternal life with him. Those who receive Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord through faith are brought to life by the Spirit of God and his new life grows in us, making us more and more like him as we follow and obey him. Receive Jesus Christ. Receive Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. Father, I... I, I pray for all of us. Firstly, for those who have never received your son Jesus into their life and allowed him to come and give them his life and give them his future, I pray, Lord, that today they would do that. They would just say, Jesus, I, I, I want you to be my savior. I want to follow you and I want a future with you, not apart from you. I pray for all of us, Lord, that you would encourage us and remind us of the wonderful future we have in Christ. That even this judgment that is described for us in this passage in Matthew, which is horrifying to consider that we are not left to ourselves. We lean on the righteousness of Jesus and we trust in him. And we thank you, Lord, that we are your children, that we are all the least of your brothers and sisters. We thank you that we have a future with you, a future, a kingdom that you have prepared from the beginning of creation for us. What an awesome thing you've done for us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.